This is Before the Light Goes Out with Catherine Williams. Steve Naive is a musician, songwriter and composer. In a career spanning more than 40 years, he's been a member of Elvis Costello's backing bands The Attractions and The Imposters and Madness. He's a prolific session musician whose idiosyncratic, unique playing is world-renowned. He's made many solo albums, Keyboard Jungle, Playboy, It's Raining Somewhere, Windows, and my personal favourite, Moo Moo. He wrote a classical opera called Welcome to the Voice with his wife, Muriel Teodori. His score was interpreted by Barbara Bonney, Sting, Robert Wyatt and Elvis Costello, among others. Welcome, Steve Naive. Oh, thank you for having me, Catherine. It is a pleasure <laughs> to see your beautiful face. Right. Oh. How did you sleep last night? Well, actually, I slept like a log. <laughs> did you? Yeah, generally I do sleep rather well. And, and I've found that I'm getting a little older now. So I don't know if that's got something to do with it. I don't think I used to sleep quite as much as I do. Once the, uh, you know, once the clock gets past 10, I'm starting to feel like it's time, you know? So where are you sleeping tonight? Well, I'm, I'm at my house in uh, Trueville by the sea. I either sleep there or we're at home at Muriel's apartment in Paris. So we sort of uh, switch between the two locations. Obviously, you know, I then go out on the road and then I'm sleeping mainly on a tour bus, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you sleep better in Paris or in the countryside? I think it's about the same, actually. When you asked me about doing this, it was funny because I'd just been out and had dinner with a friend who's an avid book reader. And he told me about this book that I think you would be interested in. I certainly am interested. I've got to get hold of it. I think you can get it on Kindle. It's called At Day's Close, A History of Nighttime. Oh, my goodness. That sounds right up my street. (laughs) I think you should try to get it because it's, you know, what we expect from sleep now in the modern world is very different from, from what it used to be, you know, particularly after... Apparently, after the electricity was invented, that changed people's sleep patterns completely, you know. Because now we live in a world that's like 24-7. It was supposed to be going all the time, you know. And we also have this idea that when we go to sleep, it's successful if it manages to go all night and we wake up in the morning and go, ah, oh, we had a good night's sleep. But actually, human sleep hasn't always been like that. This is what is incredibly interesting. I can't wait to read this book because in the past, people used to sleep in little sections, then wake up Mm. and then go back to sleep again and then wake up again. And that was considered normal. That's so interesting. And and also I saw a a bed, you know, when you go around those old houses like National Trust or whatever. Mm. And I saw a bed and I was like, this is incredibly short this bed like were people really small then and I asked someone who was working there because I am inquisitive and they said oh no they would sit up so the beds weren't for lying down flat you only lay down flat when you were dead yeah you would sleep sitting up yeah be like a sort of chair with your feet up I think people in the past were, were I mean people still are afraid of the dark 
But in the past, the dark was was something much more um, certainly frightening and certainly uh, the idea of lying down like a dead person was not... (laughs) Not happening <laughs> in those days, you know. <laughs> I suppose, like the dark as well, we don't see or think of that because at night time, you know, we have those pools of light from street lamps, even in the countryside, don't we? Yeah. There's never really times when we have to navigate our way through the dark. No. You know, like the idea that people would go to sleep and then wake up in the night and they would go outside. To see the animals, to see what was going on, you know. <laughs> we don't do that, but this was, this was much more common practice in the, in the past, you know. If you get that book, it's written by Roger E. Kirsch. That's a good name. Yep, check it out. I'm going to write it down when I start doing the edit for this podcast, definitely. Okay. So where is the strangest place you've ever slept? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And uh, listening to your podcast, there's a lot of uh, very good answers. To <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you one thing: is when I uh, when I first met Muriel, she had a friend who was uh, a charming woman who was in charge of uh, ancient monuments in the south of France. And so, uh, two places that she organised for us. The first one, when I first met Muriel, was we she gave us. There's this abbey just outside the town of Arles called Mont Majeur, and she said, if you play the piano in the cloisters for an hour each day, I'll give you the key to the, uh, to the apartment in the abbey. In it. And so we basically had this sort of, I don't know whose apartment it was, it was like uh, the uh, dean or something like that, you know. We had this apartment, and uh, she, put a little, she put an upright piano in the cloister, and I just had to get up and play the piano for an hour each day. It was perfect. Wow. So that was, uh, that was a splendid time. But then after that, the same woman gave us the key to the Chateau d'If. Now, I don't know if you know what that is. No. Just outside Marseille, there is an island which was a prison. It's where they put the man with the iron mask and all that. Wow. Yeah, so she was in charge of this building, you know. Same thing, she gave us the key. We went, there's a ferry boat that takes all the tourists out to the Chateau d'If. So we went out with the uh, tourists and then six o'clock, the last ferry boat pulled away and Muriel and I were the last people, we were just left on, on the island and we spent the night there. Was it, in, was it cells or was it like a proper bed or what was it? Well, there, there's... There's obviously an apartment for, I don't know, who, who's, you know, the person in charge of the island, ah. which we had. But then the rest of it is this prison where the man in the iron mask was imprisoned and all this stuff. And so when the boat pulls off and you're just left on this island, suddenly it's like you've, you get the feeling, you know, of what it must have been like. That was great, though. It was a really good experience. Did you document it? Did Muriel film it? She did, actually. And, and one of the, the things was is that we, we made this, this film about um, Chateau d'If. It led on to other things because it was like the Count of Monte Cristo. At one point we went to Italy and we interviewed these uh, fishermen because there's, a, there's an island off of the coast of Italy, which is uh, Monte Cristo Island, if you look at it. 
It's actually the largest snake sanctuary in Europe. Right? <laughs> That's so random. <laughs> it's a weird place. And a family gets to live on it. I mean, I don't know who would want to live there because it's like, you know, snakes everywhere. <laughs> but anyway, you, a family gets to live on it and they stay on it for like five years. Wow. And it's, it's been going on for, for years. I don't, you know, it's quite interesting. So we made a, like a documentary about this whole thing, about the Count of Monte Cristo. It's on a permanent loop on the Chateau d'If, just out in one of the uh, prison cells. <laughs> oh, wow, that's yeah. so interesting. Hey, yeah. I thought, I've just thought of a family that would want to be on that snake island. Oh, you have? What about stilt walkers? Yeah, stilt walkers. They could just constantly walk around on stilts and the snakes wouldn't bite them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can you believe you've told me all of that amazing stuff and this is what I come away with? <laughs> Do you prefer sleeping alone or with someone? Well, I like to, I like, I, I like to spend the evening with Muriel and uh, go to sleep with her, yeah. That sounds reasonable. <laughs> I'm not too keen on sleeping with anyone else, but, you know, when we go on tour, for example, we, we do a lot of uh, travelling by bus. Yeah. And so we have a, a bus with eight or nine bunks in it, and we all, we all sleep together in a very confined space. That's okay, I mean. So what do you do to sort of have your own... Do you close... Because they have curtains and stuff, don't they? I find it very hard to sleep on the bus. When I get in that bunk, it's a bit... It's, I get a kind of claustrophobic feeling. Yeah, because people think of tour buses being really glamorous, but when it comes to the beds, I mean, they are just like badly carpeted coffins, aren't they? <laughs> they are, exactly. And it's horrible. And the bus is constantly moving, it's noisy, it's really... Uh, so what I did was I got some Velcro, right? Yeah. And I put Velcro on the back of my iPad and on the ceiling of the bunk. <laughs> and I did that on my phones. And so I put, I sort of Velcro these screens all around me. And then I can get things on to, to watch. But then, of course, you know, you can't really, you can't have a, a loud sounds going on. Yeah. Because other, other people are trying to sleep. But, you know, headphones. Then you try to sleep with headphones. In fact, what happens to me is I always end up getting out of my bunk and going and sitting up the front of the bus, you know. Yeah. Travelling like that and uh, not sleeping on the bus. I mean, I haven't had anywhere near the amount of uh, tour sleeping buses. No. You've toured the world for so many years, haven't you? Can you sleep on planes and in trains and things like that? Planes are another thing. I don't know why, but I fall asleep before the plane has even taken off. <laughs> I love being on a plane. It, for some reason, uh, being on aeroplanes is one of my favourite things. Yeah, which is weird because I know a lot of people who are really terrified of, of flying, but I love it. I don't have any problem in a plane. Well, that's fortunate. Yeah. You must get a lot of air miles in. I have been uh, faithful to uh, Air France since I met Muro. Have you? <laughs> yes, but I, I'm starting to think maybe I should change because, uh, I don't know, they, they, they've changed. A lot of airlines now are trying to follow the um, where they've got this sort of wooden, you know, like all these walls around you. 
I think it's called Emirates. Oh, yeah. Right. So all the other airlines... So because it's so luxurious, all the other airlines are trying to copy that style of flying. And so now when you get in Air France, for example, you're surrounded by all this plastic. and But it's, it's not quite the same. You know, it doesn't work. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's like that on British Airways. I haven't been on them for a while. Could try sticking Velcro to the uh, <laughs> Velcro is one of the most amazing inventions, isn't it? I know. Do you know nearly all the best inventions come from nature, don't they? Yes, yes. So my next question is spoon, cuddle or space? Which is your favourite? Yeah, no, that's a, another interesting question. I like to be around Muriel, so... Spoon and cuddle. Spoon and cuddle. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally, though, it's, you know, you've got work, you've got something to do that you need to, and you work all night, and then it's, it's like, I don't want you coming to bed at, you know, three in the morning and waking me up. Yeah. So, so in that situation, then. It's space, yeah. I think, yeah. I completely agree with you. I think the whole world would like to spoon Muriel. <laughs> <laughs> what thoughts keep you awake? In general, one thing that keeps me awake quite a lot is um, whenever there's some like official forms to fill in or something like that. You know, so like once a year you have to do that tax declaration, that for example. Those kind of things. You know, I can sometimes wake up and go, oh, my God, I've got to get that done. So those sort of things, yeah. Formal forms are like my biggest nemesis, more than stairs. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I am absolutely terrified of, like, forms and formal letters and things like that. I have to get Neil to go through it with me because the fear of them even makes it hard for me to read them in case I do something wrong. I don't know what it is about forms. Yeah, I, I, when uh, they decided to do the Brexit thing, I really was like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? And uh, I decided that I had to get my French passport. And so I started the process, and it's mainly forms and paperwork, and like you have to get the birth certificate of all your family and the and all this stuff, you know. That you so you start to accumulate all this pile of papers, you know. Then you have you you, you I had to do this. Um, I'm not very good speaking French, and I I don't you know I I suspect that. The day I die, probably my last sentence will be in perfect French. But until that point, <laughs> you know, it, it won't be happening. You have to go and talk to someone for half an hour. It was great because it, it was a, a woman from one of the uh, islands, the French uh, colonies, you know. And she spoke a French that was so perfect. I could understand every word she said, you know. It was amazing. And so I got through it. And then it came to handing in these forms at the uh, prefecture de police. And this is when I encountered this woman. It, her name was Miss Peer. And the word Peer in French means the worst. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was Madame the Worst. <laughs> she took a look at my papers. And you know what it's like? You're a musician. So it's not like you've got regular income. You, and you're supposed to show all this stuff on these papers. And so she basically made a list of, like, 
20 papers that she wanted me to f to find. And because I'm not legally married to Muriel, she also wanted Muriel to make... She made a list for Muriel of papers Muriel had to suddenly produce, right? Oh, God, it sounds like hell. So when I got home and told Muriel about this, she said, um, well... I'm not going to do that. You're not going to find all those papers. We might as well forget it, right? <laughs> that was her first reaction. But then the next day she said to me, why don't you call Madame Pierre and tell her that when you came home and gave me that list of papers, I exploded and it was the end of, the, of our relationship. I've left you because of it, right? <laughs> So this is what I did, and I called her, and I said, and I told her that it had been a disaster, and that in fact she had caused the end of uh, everything with Muriel, and it was finished. <laughs> and as soon as I said that to her, she changed completely, and helped me, and I got my French nationality. Oh my! It was really weird. Wow. <laughs> Do you think that would work for me with my tax return? <laughs> I don't know, Kath, but that's what happened. And it was so uh, funny. But then when you get your French nationality, you're supposed to go to the, the town hall, which would be the Paris town hall. And uh, they actually sing to you, like the Marseillaise and all this sort of, there's like this ceremony, you know, which unfortunately I didn't get to uh, do because I was away on tour. So I missed it. I still got my, my passport and everything through the post, but I didn't get the full ceremonial, you know. <laughs> and so do you feel do you feel different now you're French? Do I feel different? Well, I feel sort of like I can be here and I can go to, you know, that's what I liked about Europe. That's what I like about Europe. You know, you can go everywhere you want in Europe and you don't have to show your passport and it's like I really believe that's a good thing, you know. Me too. And I I'm so um I think it's so crazy that they've done that because my younger uh, cousins and people, and some of them are musicians, they, you know, it's going to make it very difficult for, for people. It's crazy, I think. So do you write better or work better in the daytime or the night? I think that I work best in the morning. And uh, I generally wake up, if I'm usually the f waking up, quite early, you know, about 6.37. And I, if I need to do something that requires, you know, a lot of technical stuff or whatever, it's better if I do it in the morning, I think. Was it always that way? I mean, what about when you were a young musician? I don't really re recall that, <laughs> uh, what it was like. <laughs> I think it's always been that way, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You and Muriel and Muriel's son did online live shows. Was it yeah. was it pretty much every day of lockdown? When it first started, the uh, the lockdown and that it was every, we did it all, every night, you know, and it, it was called the daily improvisation. And then it just sort of kept going and it grew and uh, it was pretty regular. And um, then we started having to find, you know, learn songs that we didn't know i built a, a huge songbook from doing that i think we built a community of people who were very you know thankful and uh, very loyal and it was good for them but it was also really good for us 
It was one of the most feel-good things that I cherished online. The sort of interaction between you and Muriel talking and saying hello to people, it really felt like you weren't on your own. Right. And it was a real inspiration for me doing my Instagrams over lockdown as well. Right. Well, the good thing about about it was that I didn't have to do too much talking. <laughs> uh, I think, it, you know, Muriel is, is very good uh, at presenting and talking. And what uh, we did yesterday, though, is I said to Muriel, now we need, I need your set list because uh, I love it when she sings, you know. I do. Yeah, so we, I did actually get the set list finally done yesterday. I'm going to get her out on the road singing, you know. I would come to that. Yeah. You could even set up a stage so it would be like you're doing the Instagram thing or the Facebook thing. Yes. Like a living room and she could be sitting listening to you on an easy chair or something and then joining you at the piano. <laughs> yeah, I think that living room that we did it from, people kind of... Uh, actually, we did after we did, did that for a while and then, you know, the lockdown finished and... We decided to go and do a few gigs out on the road. And obviously, some people that had tuned in to us said, OK, it's going to be great. We're going to come and see you in the real world, you know. And they all said it was really weird for them because they were so used to seeing us in that living room in a, a virtual way, you know, that the fact that they were in the same room as us was really kind of strange for them, you know, strange feeling. Because they couldn't brush their teeth while they were watching or have a bath. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird that, you know, you're doing these live shows and, you know, I get messages coming up saying, this is lovely, I'm in the bath. And I'm thinking, we haven't haven't negotiated this situation. (laughs) No, no. No, I I received quite a few uh, photographs of, uh, of people that it showed their living room with the most gigantic TV screen with us on it, you know. Uh, It was most peculiar. So I got quite a few photos of that. We met some lovely people from doing that, and then they've kept in touch. We write to them occasionally, and they write to us. and So it's a really good community of people, yeah. You know, horrendous things happened in lockdown, but it's like that thing, you make the good happen and you realise something positive. Yeah. And people will cling to it, I guess. Yeah. Steve. Yeah. We've come to the last question. Oh. And it has absolutely flown by. I think you need to stop saying that Muriel's the good speaker in your relationship because you do a pretty damn good job. Can I just say, before you do your last question. Yeah. I've got a question for you. Oh. (laughs) No, no, it's just, um, I was thinking about songs that talk about sleep. Yeah. Right. And trying to, to think what they would be. And I came, you know, I thought of John Lennon. I'm so tired. I haven't got to sleep that one. Yeah. And there's like Roy Orbison in Dreams. Yeah. Right. So I was just trying, did, did you uh, have a, a song about sleep that you really love? Well, I used to sing that Mamas and Papa song to the kids, you know, stars shining bright above you. Oh, yeah, that's a great Night one. Night breezes seem to whisper, I love you. Right. <laughs> I used to sing that and just go round and round. Yeah. Yeah, so that's my question for no, you. No, 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 that's not a question. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember a lullaby song or a book 
yeah. that sent you to sleep as a child. Yeah, it's, you know, I've got the worst memory known to man, actually. When it comes to remembering things in the past, I'm, I'm really not uh, very good. But I do remember something, actually. My uh, father built his hi-fi system. Because, you know, technology in those days wasn't what it is today. And I think also hi-fis were kind of expensive objects. So he got a kit and built this thing. And it was like in a cabinet. And you opened the door and there was a turntable in there. And, and he had a reel-to-reel tape recorder and all this stuff, right? So they used to have a, a good selection of vinyls. I remember one of the vinyls was sort of uh, this thing called Sparky's Magic Piano. Do you remember that? Did you ever hear that? Do you know when you said it? Yeah. did make me go, ooh, yeah. but no, tell me about it. Well, it's like, uh, you know, Laurie Anderson with her vocoder. But it's, you know, it was probably, I don't know when it was done, Sparky. It was like in the uh, 60s probably. But it's like a whole story about this little boy who wanted to play the piano, the piano starts to talk to him, but it's done with a vocoder. Sparky! You know, it's like that. <laughs> and then on the other side of this final was Sparky and the, and the train. And every time the train goes by, it, it speaks to him, and it's the vocoder sound again. And uh, it always says, you know... And then he counts the train cars... And then one day the train goes by and it says to him, there's going to be a terrible accident. And it was like, you know, what a nightmare. I mean, this whole thing of Sparky is quite a nightmare, actually. But I remember this as a kid. So what happened, though? You can't just leave me hanging. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. Well, I think he's on the train story. I think he saves, he saves, you know, he tells everyone that there's going to be a thing, and they stop the train, and then they, they find that there's one of the wheels is loose or something like that. And so he saves everybody on the train. Oh, right, good. I'm, I'm going to be <laughs> able to sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> and so do you think in some way that that influenced you to be Stevie and his magic piano? No, I don't think so, because, you know, I, start, I started to play the piano when I was about four years old, way before that. You know, my mother has a story that she loves to tell, which is that when I was really tiny, I used to sit at the table and draw piano keyboards on bits of paper because we didn't, we didn't have a piano. And then I'd draw the keyboard and then I would sit there and, and be playing, pretending to play a piano. Wow. And so then they knew that they had to get one. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a weird story. I don't remember any of that. You know, I don't know if she made it up. She might have done. It sounds unlikely. No, no, I don't think she did. That's been you for life, the piano yeah. and you. The first keyboard I had wasn't a piano. It was one of those pump organs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My dad discovered there was a church around the corner that we're going to... They said, you know, if someone doesn't come and take this pump organ away, we're going to burn it. <laughs> One of the things I do remember as a kid was uh, going around to this church with a wheelbarrow to help my dad rescue this thing. And, of course, it was really heavy, you know, and balancing it on the, in this wheelbarrow and trying to wheel it back to our house. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a harmonium in our bedroom, you know, with yeah. the feet pumps. With the, yeah, it's, it's this. But they, they have a sort of huge thing on the top, like mirrors and candelabras and very ornate, you know. 
I think they took they had to take that off, and so we didn't get that bit. But what was good is the pedals. You know, you push the pedals down. So if you push one pedal down, there's a place inside where you can hide things from your parents. <laughs> so have you still got it? No, no. This was a you know when I lived at home with mum and dad and my brothers and sisters. <laughs> And all the contraband in, yeah. in the harmonium under the pedals. <laughs> well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and joy. It's been a pleasure for me because normally I'm really, uh, you know, being interviewed or doing this kind of thing. It's like forms. It gets me in an anxious state, but it's been lovely talking to you, Catherine. Oh, Steve Naive. Well, thank you. Thank you.